Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn to our Bibles, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at 9, and I don't know if we'll get to 28, but we'll start at 9 and see how far we can get. And the title of today's message is The Bedrock of a Society. And those of you joining us online, we thank you from around the world, around the United States. We know we have a lot of people watch us online, so we thank you for that. What we're going to be talking about is God is laying out the prescriptions for Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the Israelites are going to have to to perform. And this is the night before the, uh, the judgment on Egypt is coming to the firstborn. The death of the firstborn will come that evening. And so God is preparing Israel for this through the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that will eventually be celebrated every year, even to this day, and into the Messianic Kingdom. But the point that we want to look at is that God is forming a nation with the, the, the children of Israel. They have been a group, they have grown, and now he's getting ready to launch them out of Egypt and to become a holy nation, a mediatorial nation to the other nations. And so what you're going to see now with Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and these other items that the Lord's going to have Israel do is to create a bedrock or a foundation for their nation. And basically what I want to be able to do is use that and I want you to see the principles in there and then apply them to how America was founded. Because our founding fathers used these same principles, even though Israel was a theocracy, the principles are there to have a proper godly nation, a nation that will, will survive, will do great economically, will, will produce and have a good citizenry. It's all found in the bedrock of how he creates Israel. Okay, So you'll see a lot of parallels a lot of times with what our founders did with, with, uh, with our nation. But as you know, our country, our bedrock is under attack right now. And folks, we know about the immorality growing in America. It's been going on since the 1960s, and it's gotten worse every decade to the point now we have Oreo cookies now that are celebrating the LGBT life and now partnering with a group to give support to people to stay in that lifestyle and destroy themselves. Whereas Jesus wants to pull them out of that lifestyle and rescue them and give them life, they, Oreo and other companies, want to send them to their death. But we know about that, don't we? But right now, what's on the forefront is our election. And I have to state this before we get into the text, because this is where the attack on the bedrock of society is happening. This election is not about two men. It's about... Judeo-Christian ethics and our foundations of how America was founded now being attacked by Marxists who want a godless country, atheistic country, and want Christianity kicked out of this nation. That's what's at stake. This is not a Republican versus Democrat. This is an issue of worldviews. And right now, 
Some evil people are trying to mess around with our voting. This voting fraud is the real deal, man. You must understand what they're trying to do through this because it's an attack on our bedrock. Our Constitution says you cannot change elections or laws according to how you vote at the governor level, at the state assembly level, or even the judges. You have to legislate new laws. You just simply can't be Gavin Newsom saying, we're going to do mail-in ballots. That's illegal according to our Constitution. And apparently no one cares. No one's calling these governors out on this. So we now have people here in California getting multiple ballots at their home with different names of previous people who have lived in the homes. We now find that postal workers who hate conservatism and Christianity open the letters, see who you voted for, and then are dumping them and discarding them. We found military uh, votes for Trump that were thrown into a ditch. We're finding this all over the place. And then we're finding like people like Ilhan Omar sending her little cronies out to rest homes and, and having all these people in the rest home vote for her and other people and paying people 200 bucks to buy their vote. This is serious business. And if this continues to go, you will see our very country undermined by these people. Now, we do know that God's in control. We know what's happening, be prophetically what's supposed to happen in the world. So don't lose heart, but my admonition to you, and when you see this level of evil, it means you need to step up your game. You need to get up in the batter's box and take your swing. Don't sit back and say, oh, I'm too pietistic about this and I don't want to get involved. You have evangelical leaders like David Platt and the rest of these neo-Calvinists who come out and say, you know what, you know, these, these candidates are just ungodly, and so you were going to refrain from voting. You know what these neo-Calvinists are doing? That's called voter suppression through spirituality. That's what they're doing. They write books on this, and they say, well, Christians, you're above this. Look, we are not voting for a pastor. We are voting for someone that will give Israel, the church, and life, the freedom it needs to have. That's it. At this point, this is where the game is. And 45 million Christians decided not to vote in the last election. Folks, I'm going to tell you what. If this thing is close, you can expect with big tech, the globalists, they're going to fight this all the way through. They already are saying you will not hear a clear winner if it's close on election night. That's unprecedented in American history. They will take this past the inauguration in January 21st. They will litigate this thing. And then we will have an instability in our own government with no one leading. Why do you think they keep asking Trump if he'll leave the White House? Why do you think they ask that? Podesta and his cronies, a hundred of them had a meeting in this last summer, and they war-gamed our election. Just like they war-gamed the coronavirus. They war-gamed it. This is October. Last October, Bill Gates and his cronies were war-gaming the coronavirus. They knew it. And then this summer, Podesta shows his hand and says, they're war-gaming our election. 
You think, well, what does this have to do with Christianity? Everything. Because if you get the wrong people in power, as you see with Gavin Newsom, they are already showing you their hand. They're shutting down the churches. They will restrict what you and I can say from a pulpit or whatnot. The freedom of speech will be gone. You cannot criticize immorality anymore. You, you get where this is going. You and I will suffer persecution if the wrong people are in place. Please understand that. And I know I'm speaking to the choir, but if you're going out and talking to other Christian people, you've got to tell them what's at stake. Too many me people are checked out. And too many people are taking this pietistic road that they're above it all. And I just don't get involved in politics. Okay, that very person will be the one, when we lose, the one person then I want to say to them, well, you like it now that your church is shut down? Do you like it now that your pastor can't say anything? It's your fault for not going and doing something. And then at the end of the day, you have these pietistic neo-Calvinists saying, well, you know, the Christians in third world countries, they don't even think about politics. And I want to say... Duh, they're under a totalitarian system. Of course they don't think about politics. They can't even vote. But here in America, God is going to require every American Christian, did you do something? Did you try to stem the tide? Did you try to be salt and light as best as you possibly could? That's what we're going to be accountable. We're going to be accountable for the freedom that God gave us here in America. And I know I'm speaking to the choir, but it's time to step up. Because the bedrock that America used to stand on is being attacked. And that's what I want to talk about with Israel. Let's start in verse 9 of chapter 12 and look at the bedrocks that God starts laying out for Israel. And this is in the midst, the context, the midst of the Exodus. They're getting ready to leave. But look what he says. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 9. And remember, last week we talked about the Passover lamb and how they were to prepare it. But notice in verse 9, he continues on how to prepare this lamb. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now, we talked about the blood on the doorpost. We talked about the sacrifice of the lamb. But now it's going further And how you are to eat it. How are you to cook it? Notice it says you must roast it. You have to do it over fire. Now, again, the Passover lamb obviously points to the Messiah. And, this is, and, and notice what he's saying here. I don't want any parts left over. If there's anything left over, I want it all burned in the fire because I need a whole burnt offering. You just can't have parts of the sacrifice. You've got to have the whole sacrifice. So when we point to Jesus about this, Jesus is the, not only the perfect sacrifice, it is the whole sacrifice of what you and I need. It's the whole totality of the Messiah that must be sacrificed. And notice it has to be burned. Burning is a symbol of judgment. And that's why it can't be boiled or eaten raw. It has to be burned because fire represents judgment. So when Messiah hung on the cross, he was experiencing the judgment of God being poured out on him for our sins, and he experienced that heat. And that's why he said at the end of it, he says, I thirst 
He had experienced hell for us. And there's a, a judgment is con, it has a, a fiery aspect to it, a burning aspect to it. And so Messiah, obviously, a picture of Messiah is there, burning in the heat of judgment. Notice that you can't let, let any part of the lamb be left over. All of it must be consumed or it must be burned the next day. If you go further out on this, and you go into understanding who Jesus is and what he did, this is an interesting point. You must accept the entire lamb, entrails and all, right? You must sacrifice the whole thing. Now, if you bridge that over to Jesus theologically, it's this message. You do not get to pick and choose what parts of Jesus you want. You must accept the Messiah whole, as he is presented in the scriptures. You cannot present Jesus and accept him as just a way shower, a life enhancer, uh, your buddy, whatever. You must accept the biblical view. And I know a lot of people, a lot of churches want to preach the love of Jesus, but they never want to preach that Jesus holds people accountable for every thought or word or action or deed. They don't want to preach that Jesus is the judge of this world. They don't want to preach the blood of the Messiah because, you know, quite frankly, that just seems barbaric. And, you know, that's why churches have taken down their crosses now because it's just, you know, it's just barbaric. And the blood and the guts and all that stuff. No. Messiah is presented on the cross, bloody, to the point that they, the scriptures say they couldn't recognize him. And you are not to look away from that. Because that is your whole sacrifice of what needed to happen. So to take the blood out of the sacrifice, to take the judgment out of the sacrifice, is now presenting a counterfeit Jesus, which these churches are doing. The blood of the Messiah is the only way of salvation. That's it. That's the only thing that takes away your sins. Only things that removes your sins from as far as the east is from the west. This bloodless Christianity, this sanitized version that is being presented in America is a false version. Don't buy into it. It's where it just celebrates the love of Jesus, but it doesn't talk about the commands of Jesus. What did Jesus say about his commands? If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commands. Not for salvation, but just as a way of life. See, that's what has to happen. We have to accept the whole picture of Messiah. And this goes even further. You can't accept just parts of the Bible. You have to accept all 66 books, all issues you have to accept. Not this piece and that piece and pick and choose like a cafeteria. That's not how it works. Verse 11, And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The idea is that you eat it standing up. Now, when they're in the land of Israel, they'll eat it reclining. But on Passover night, they're to do it standing up, ready to go. Their belts, their staffs, everything's ready to go because they have to respond in a moment's call to leave, okay? It's done in haste. So they're going to eat on the run, fast food eating, so to speak, if that makes sense, right? So they're going to do this standing up. Okay, what it's showing Israel is the principle of 
You must always be ready at, at whenever I command you. And at the same time, you must do the work that I command you. And this is interesting. So they're to do the work of the Passover, go through the whole Passover meal, but at any moment they can be called to leave. Okay? This principle is carried over into the New Testament. And it's a principle that the church experiences as well. What is the principle? The principle is this. You and I could be raptured at any moment. We could be raptured now or tonight. We always have to be prepared to go. And I'm sure everyone's ready to go. I got my bags packed. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm done with this world. But as long as I'm here, what did Jesus tell me to do? Put on a white sheet, stand on the hilltops and wait for him? No. He said this, you occupy, you do business until I come. Right? So the idea is we do what the Lord's called us to do as and prepare to leave in an instant. Right? So I had some internet troll, and there's a lot of internet trolls out there on YouTube land and on the internet. And so this one guy did a whole thing against me. This is amazing. So you get out there on YouTube, you should, you should expect some enemy uh, resistance, right? So the, the internet troll goes out and says, how can this guy say he's going to build a church and yet at the same time believes in the rapture? And I want to say, because I can have two narratives in my head? That's why? Because if I believe in the rapture, yes, I believe I'm going to go, but that doesn't mean I stop ministry. That doesn't mean I, hey, we're, we're just going to wait. We're just going to sit there and wait. That's what the Thessalonians got in trouble for, remember? And they stopped actually working. And Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. I think California ought to try that on some of the people here on the government dole. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I do digress. So we're to do ministry and at the same time, keep the thought of the rapture happening in the back of our mind. So that's how we do it. We occupy until the Lord comes. Do business until he comes. And see, that's what he was telling Israel. Now he tells us the church. It's, it's a, a parallel. Verse 12, let's continue on. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now, I explained that last time, so I'm not going to go through it again on the last sermon. We talked about why God is striking the firstborn, and God is the just judge, and he's recompensing Israel, for Pharaoh has attacked Israel, God's firstborn. So God is taking action on the Egyptians' firstborn. It's also an attack on the animals as well. Have you noticed that? The animals, you're like, why would God attack the animals? Because the animals represent their money. That's their economy. So to attack the animals and take the firstborn is like attacking their bank account, if that makes sense. But notice this last phrase, and this is one I, wa I want to highlight. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Now, when God says this, he is talking about the Egyptian gods. Now, this is not a figment of the Egyptians' imagination. Like I've pointed out all the way through this, these guys, these false gods represent fallen angels, real fallen angels and demons that the Egyptians are worshiping. This is real deal stuff. These creatures have power. They do have limited power. Satan has power. There's no doubt about that. But what God has been doing with the Egyptians is showing that these fallen creatures, fallen angels, demons, are powerless with Yahweh. 
It is like, uh, I tried to find the best analogy I can, it's like an ant trying to fight you as a human being. That ant has some power. He can carry a leaf, right? And you see, that's amazing how an ant can carry a big old leaf. But compared to a human being, the ant is no match. So with infinite power of Yahweh, God is showing that these creatures that I created, God's saying, have, are no match for me. They can't do anything against me. So God is showing that he's the most powerful. And rest assured today, do not think George Soros or Bill Gates or Gavin Newsom or all these other lunatics out there, billionaires who wanted to get the world to a one-world government, one-world currency, do not think for a moment that they're in control. They think they are, but God is in control. He is giving them enough rope to hang themselves, don't you see? And so they're going on a path that follows the plan of God, and they don't even know it. They have set a trap for themselves and don't realize it. So God is saying, keep going, because I'm going to give you what you want. One day, it's coming. But anyway, then God follows up and says, I am the Lord, or it should be translated Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. Yahweh is, is the covenantal name of God with Israel. And it shows Israel that I am going to make good on my promises to Abraham. And, and I'm going to take you out of this area. So it's a covenantal promises. But notice, like I've mentioned before, the paleo name in Hebrew and Paleo-Hebrew was the original Hebrew in which they wrote. And you can see it on your screen right there. What does the Paleo-Hebrew say? Hand, behold. Nail, behold. In Yahweh's personal name, it is a verb. And the verb is saying, look at Yahweh's hands. And look at the nail in Yahweh's hands. Yahweh, his personal name is saying, I am going to eventually be your sacrificial Passover lamb that delivers you ultimately from sin and death. It's in his name. Isn't it amazing? Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when Yahweh sees the blood, so that means Yahweh's actively going to go through Egypt. Personally himself, I will, notice it's him talking, pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. So Yahweh will go through the villages of the Egyptians, and if he sees the blood, he passes over them. But again, it's Yahweh on the ground. It's Yahweh executing the judgment. Okay? This is very unique. And the plague should not be on you, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So again, so Yahweh will go through himself personally, and this is what your door better look like. Your door of your house better have blood on it, applied to the lentil and the two posts. Like we said last week, when you look at that, that's a Hebrew letter of the Tav. The original Paleo-Hebrew, if you recall, is this. This is the original Paleo-Tav. You would have actually drawn it like a cross. And so each house is marked with a cross in the front of the door. And it's the same today. If Yahweh 
doesn't see that you've accepted Christ and accepted the blood of the Messiah as as uh, propitiation for your sacrifices, then he will do something. But if he sees that blood on your door, the door of your heart, behold, I knock on the door. If he sees that blood, then he will pass over you because the Messiah then protects you. It's funny that some people ask me, what it, you know, when we talk about God or Messiah protecting us in salvation, he becomes a refuge for us. He, um, he's our shield and things of that nature. I ask them sometimes, when you accept Christ, what is he saving you from? Well, it's sin and death, that's true. But ultimately, what Messiah is saving you from is him. Because his justice must execute judgment on those who are sinners. So when Messiah saves you, he's protecting you from his wrath through his sacrifice. And that's how he can cover you. Wow. Let's continue on. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians... And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. This is the second time he mentions this. And notice what he says. And not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now, then we must interpret what the destroyer is and who he is. The destroyer, is, it's, um, we assume it's an angel, a fallen angel. And I think that's a good assumption. The destroyer actually has other destroying angels with him. And according to Psalm 78, verse 49, the psalm recounts the story, and it says it wasn't just one destroyer, it was a band of destroyers. And it never calls them angels, but we assume it is. So let me unpack this just a little bit about the destroying angels. If, the, if we're right in our understanding, destroying angels are good angels, but they are given the task to execute judgment, whether it's on God's people or unbelievers, okay? They're a moment, at any moment's notice, they can do what they need to do. If you recall Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter strikes the guy and cuts his ear off, what did Jesus tell him? Don't you know, Peter, I can call down legions, to protect me. Remember that? Who are the legions? Legions of destroying angels. The armies of God. The hosts of heaven. And Messiah is the captain of the Lord's guard. So these destroying angels are very powerful angels. They do what the Lord tells them to do. So, they will be the ones who actually take the life of the individual. So what happens is, and I want you to picture this in your mind. Yahweh is coming down into Egypt and he will go from house to house. Behind Yahweh will be the band of destroying angels to act on what Yahweh tells them. Yahweh tells Israel, when I see the blood, not when a destroying angel sees it, when I see the blood. So when Yahweh sees a house with blood, he will tell the destroying angels off limits. But if he sees a house with no blood, then... Yahweh gives the green light to the destroying angels to kill the firstborn, and they will. So this is how judgment is executed with Yahweh leading the way. Okay, This is, happens later on in Israel's history. 
In the days of Hezekiah, one destroying angel kills, I think, 180, 185,000 people in one night. And you'll see that there's a time when David starts doing a census of the people of Israel against God's wishes, and the destroying angels ready to destroy Jerusalem, and God holds them back. The destroying angel's not gone. In the book of Revelation, those angels that execute the judgments in the book of Revelation are the destroying angels. They're the ones who do the executions of what God wills. So these are real creatures, and they, they, they exist, and, and this should set everybody back on their heels to realize God didn't just create humans. He created another group of beings called angels, and a third of them fell with Lucifer. But they are active in our world. And by the way, I believe the darkness angels are very active right now through people. So you must be aware of what we call the angelic conflict, that these creatures are real. Verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Notice what it calls an everlasting ordinance. You will always do this as long as Israel lives. By the way, this lasting ordinance of Passover will be kept in the Messianic kingdom. You and I will, in the Messianic kingdom, will keep the feast of Passover because the text says it's an everlasting ordinance. Interesting that three feasts, three Jewish feasts, will be kept during the Messianic kingdom. Passover is one. Pentecost is the second one, and tabernacles, which they just got finished celebrating in Israel, will also be celebrated. Tabernacles is called Sukkot, um, where they make the little tabernacle. Well, anyway, tabernacles focuses, is a feast that focuses on the Messianic kingdom and the celebration of being in the Messianic kingdom. But why Passover and why Pentecost? Why are they carried over into the Messianic age? This is very interesting. Passover, as you can see is the first religious feast of Israel. Israel is now getting its foundations laid through Passover. The birth of the nation is happening. And the the very first instance that God wants Israel to remember in its birth is Passover. Let me ask you this question. What entity was birthed on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came, but what happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples? The birth of the church happened at Pentecost. Notice that the two spring feasts, Passover, Pentecost, starts two organizations, Israel and the church. They're distinct. But then both entities celebrate in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Messianic Kingdom uh, Festival. So isn't it amazing that, that how God plays that all out perfectly? And so they are to do this. Now, here's the application. I want to talk about our roots, our, our, our foundations for a country. What God is telling Israel is that you will do this every year. Now, later on, The obligations of how to do this will be more spelled out later in the five books of Moses. 
And the obligations for the Passover in order to keep this will not be done typically out like in, in a public forum. Passover will be done in the homes of the Jewish people. And those who are responsible in that home will then create an environment where they pass on that information to the next generation. So what God installs here is the pedagogy, the education of Israel. When you see this, please understand it. Our framers of the United States understood this, that it is the responsibility of the parents to pass on information. Okay? They are to pass on the morals, the history to that next generation. And it is no one else's responsibility other than that parent. Please tell me, in the last 60 years, what has happened to parents? They have totally checked out. They have said, I'm not responsible. I'll let the public schools teach my kids. And then they will be responsible for teaching them morals, teaching them history, teaching them religion. And and before you know it, in 60 years, we shouldn't be surprised of the results that public education and the colleges and universities are producing. No one should be shocked about what they're producing. We shouldn't be shocked to see Portland. That's the result. Because you know what's happened in public education? Uh, They have undermined our roots. They have taken responsibility from the parents, said, give us your kids, we'll teach them. John Dewey, the father of education in the United States, was a flat-out leftist, ungodly man. And he said, the goal of education is to get the kids away from their parents. And you know what? They did it. So I want you to think about how America was founded, that the responsibility of education rested on the parents, not on someone else. That's how Israel was able to survive generation after generation to pass that information on. Think about this. What have they done to our history? What have they done to Christianity in America? They've demonized both. Because, and I'm I'm speaking to the choir, I know you didn't do this, but the majority of people in America have punted that responsibility over. And because of that, that group of people have been licking their chops saying, that's right, give us your kids, because we will get them to think like us. And they have. A basic principle of education, if it's not followed, look how they've undermined things. Isn't that amazing? Just simple. Let's continue on. Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, I want you to think about it. Now it's going into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover would happen, and then you would have seven days of a feast of what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they got both holidays got combined into, together. Um, and so what ended up happening is it just got, a lot of times it got, just got called Passover, and it was a seven-day feast, but it was two feasts in one, basically. Okay, this idea of seven days of unleavened bread points to the Messiah, if you look at unleavened bread, unleavened bread has obviously no yeast in it, but to be kosher, it's got to have punctures in it, and it's got to be uh, burnt, have burnt marks in it. 
on it. Like we, we, we talk about that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. But it points to the Messiah's body, okay? That Messiah would not only be brutalized, he'd be pierced and striped for our transgressions, right? But it, the, the lack of leaven represents that Messiah would be sinless. Because Messiah is sinless, the Paschal Lamb, which is the Messiah's blood, is combined with the, that the Messiah is sinless. Therefore, the blood of the Messiah is perfect because he has no sin. And because he's God, the blood has eternal value that can wipe away anyone's sin and all of pe- anyone who comes to him. So that's where Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are working together. It's pointing to the sinlessness of that sacrifice. Now, it continues on. It says this, On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Now, this is interesting. Not only are you not to eat it, but I want all of your houses, I want it removed. Now, think about this. Whatever they had, they had to do what we call spring cleaning. Believe it or not, I, 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 I know this sounds crazy, the, the idea of spring cleaning came from the Jews because their form of spring cleaning came with the Passover. They would actually clean the house of any form of leaven. And so spring cleaning actually came from this concept of getting the leaven out of your house. Um, as you can see with leaven, it's small, but here's what I want you to understand. Leaven in the Bible always pointed to sin. It points to sin. So not only is the Messiah sinless, but it's telling the Israelites about themselves. I want leaven purged from you. I don't want you consuming leaven and putting that in your body. I want, in fact, not only you not to consume it, but I want you to get it out of your house. It must be purged out. Because leaven, folks... Many times it's hidden. You can't see it. It works silently. It works secretly. It spreads and then pollutes. And it causes the dough to be puffed up. Now, I want you to think about this. And I'll make a nationalistic application, but I'll make a personal application first. The Israelites were told, even if you're not consuming leaven or participating in sin, if you have someone in your home that's doing this, You need to stop it because you're responsible for what's going on in your home. And if you know that something's not right, you have someone in your home, a renter, an adult child, a teenager, whatever, doing something, you know it's not right. You're responsible for purging out the leaven. No one else. Now, nationalistically, later on, when they get into the land, or when Moses says, when you get in the land, this is what I want you to do. He then spells out that there will be no leaven in the entire land. So it's not just the home. He expands it out into the entire land of Israel. I don't want any leaven in the land. Again, picturing I don't want any idolatry. I don't want any sin being practiced in the land. 
Think about how desecrated Israel is today. Did you know that Tel Aviv is there wanting to make that the homosexual capital of the world? In Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv. You would think San Francisco or something like that. No, no. Tel Aviv. Leaven has entered into the land, hasn't it? It's corrupted. But think about us in America. Benjamin Franklin, all the founders who, who were pattering, pattering our government based on what Israel was doing, okay, understood, and they said this. They asked, I think it was Ben Franklin, what did you give us? Did you give us a, di- a dictatorship or did you give us a republic? And he goes, I gave you a republic, but it's your responsibility to keep it. Because they all knew that the moral framework of Christianity was the only thing that was going to hold the United States together. And they knew that if the United States ever got away from Christianity, the form of government that we now have, a constitutional republic, will not hold. Because guess what will happen? The leaven will introduce itself into the loaf. Question, and you all probably know this answer, has the leaven introduced the lo- in, into the loaf of politics? Has leaven introduced into academics? Yes. Has it introduced into the media? Yes. Has it introduced to Hollywood? Yes. The major four areas of the United States has been corrupted by leaven. And it's permeated through the whole loaf. And the whole loaf is no good. That's what happens when you crack open the door. That's what happens when they told us back in 2008, or I think it was 2008, when we voted here in California that we would not support gay marriage. You remember that? Prop 8? Judge overturned that. And what did we say? If you allow this, this leaven, this door to be open, it will open up Pandora's box and more will come from this. Now here we are in 2021. Question, has the leaven permeated the loaf in the sexual arena? Yes, they're even trying to put on the acceptance of society pedophilia. After that will be bestiality. I'm serious, man. People thought I was crazy when I said that. People thought other Christians were crazy. Oh, it's going to lead to more. And what did they say to us? Oh, no, no, no. This is only between two people behind closed doors. What do you care, Christian, what goes behind people's doors? Because I know the nature of sin. Sin is leaven. It doesn't stay behind closed doors. It permeates. And what it's done to our culture has destroyed it morally. That's what God was telling Israel. The minute Israel, you allow the leaven into your country, it's over. You will get to a point where you can't cross a line, Israel. And you cross a line you don't come back from. And that happened with the Babylonian exile, happened with the Assyrians, and you know it well. Notice this, though. Look at the, look at the next phrase. This will set you back on your heels. For whoever eats leavened bread... With bread with leaven in it, right? From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And I want you to think about that. Now, I know a lot of Gentile commentaries will kind of soft pedal this. 
and they'll kind of say, well, you know, um, you know, the person's going to have his due and it's going to catch up to him for not doing this. And sometimes it was temporary exile out of the community or, you know, eventually they, something would happen to them or whatever. And it, it just gets soft-pedaled. But it's wrong to soft-pedal this verse. The Hebrew context and the understanding of what cutoff means, it's simple, real simple. It's black and white. Capital punishment. Whoa! Whoa! If I ingest leaven and I'm caught during this feast of ingesting it or not getting it out of my house, then I will be executed in Israel? Yes! Remember, Israel is a theocracy. God is dwelling in the midst of, 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 of Israel in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. So again, don't do apples to apples. We're in a much different situation here in America. We are not in a theocracy. We're the church, and the church is not a nation. So please don't do apples to apples. But I want you to see how severe this was for them. Capital punishment? Yeah, capital punishment. And again, I'm going off the top of my head. There was about 34, 35, somewhere in the low 30s of instances that Israel would do that required capital punishment. Somewhere in that neighborhood. That if you did this, you're going to die. You will be executed. Let me ask you this. Did you think anyone celebrating this feast would toy around with this and say, I'm going to see if I can get caught? No, because, please follow me, because this is a nationalistic principle. The consequences were so severe that it deterred anyone from messing around. No one wanted to have capital punishment for ingesting leaven. But the principle is this, and you can see it right now in the American judicial system. People are committing crimes because there's no deterrence, because there's no consequences for their crime. You've got people who are rioting in Portland and, and Minnesota and all these crazy things, burning down places, and what do these people say? We're not going to put them in jail. You have these DAs, these prosecutors, who are put in place and funded by George Soros. No joke. George Soros paid to get these guys in the place, the DAs. And they won't prosecute these people. So when you have no consequences, then you have a society that turns into anarchy, right? So God was instilling into Israel early on, your society won't function if you don't put consequences on people. And those consequences better scare them. I hear you, I talk to our, 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 our CEOs that work in, in, in some of the, the prisons here locally. These guys, they tell me, man, that the prisoners love it there. It's like vacation. They get their teeth fixed, they get their health thing, they go in there in the wintertime, they escape the cold weather, and then they get out and they do a petty crime to get back in, get their medical fixed up, three, uh, you know, three squares in a cot, and they're golden. They're watching TV, kicking back. Hey, man, no wonder they're not afraid to do crime. No wonder. It's like going to Club Med. I mean, there's no consequences means no deterrent. Do you know that we now have lawyers that have been trained like this, that they don't want to prosecute people? 
They want people to get off on their crimes and do that. That's the problem we're having in America. No consequences. Let's bring it down to even, to even a, a more, a more of a personal application. You want to know why our prison population is that way? No consequences. But it starts young. You have the schools who absolutely refuse to give any consequences whatsoever to any kids going through the school. I mean, you would literally have to do something so grievous to get kicked out. But you could sit there and cuss out a teacher. You can, you can threaten the teacher. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff, sleep every day in their classroom, and no one's going to kick you out. No one. You just keep passing on, passing on. And, we, you know, we've got to have a, a ten-step process to get some kid kicked out. You know, in the old days, you messed around, they kicked you out, don't you? Go out there and pump gas. Remember that? They, you, they didn't mess around with you. So there was a consequence from messing around. You could do drugs, and now you're not going to get kicked out of schools. Nothing's going to happen to you. In fact, if you try to kick out of school, you're going to be threatened to be sued by the parents who will, don't give consequences. So then you boil it down to the family unit. Who was in charge of making sure all the leaven was out of the house? The parents. Right? So ultimately, the parents are responsible for the consequences when bad behavior erupts. Obviously, it's very foundational. The problem you have is that when Dr. Spock came in and told a whole generation in the 60s not to give consequences to kids and instead build up their ego and talk to them, our whole way of parenting changed in the United States to a more, you know what, we need to reason with the kid. I know he's five, but we're going to sit there and reason with him to see if he understands where I'm coming from as a parent. Uh, no? No, 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 no. Sometimes as a parent, you have to say, you're not doing it, and they're going to say, why? Because I said so, that's why. I'm the authority. And if I say something, it goes. And that's what God was teaching Israel. This is how you shall run your homes. But if you undermine that, you won't have a society, will you? Consequences. Purging out leaven. I want you to think about that as far as application. When you see those things, and you see them not being done in America, then what's left? You see what I'm saying? When you take away that foundation, just those two principles, consequences and sin, you take that away, what kind of society do you expect to have? First of all, you get anarchy, right? Okay, that will happen. They know anarchy will happen, okay, when you do that. They know it. So if they know anarchy is going to happen, what do you think their next move is? When they say, we need to rethink the cops, we, uh, no, the, the word is reimagine. Reimagine the police. We need to reimagine our, our free market. We need to reimagine Christianity. We need to reimagine this. What are they saying? It's, they, are, they know anarchy will ensue, but then that's when they come in with a solution, and the solution is dictatorial totalitarian hard, heavy-handedness to control the anarchy. That's what the goal is. To move from a free society to a dictatorial one, you have to cause anarchy. And God knows that, and that's why he prescribed Israel its principles. Now, let me end on this story. 
And many times, the Jews will celebrate Passover every year because it's a perpetual holiday. And the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread actually brings conviction when you do it because it points to you. It points to the purging of sin, the necessary requirement of blood for the Passover and all that. It brings a conviction of sin, actually, to actually do the service. This is interesting. I read about this guy in Israel. Let me show you a picture of the city of David, okay? So if you ever go to Israel, south of the Temple Mount is the city of David. And these are the ruins of the city of David, and they're excavating them. It's pretty fascinating. And as a tour group, you can go there and look down in there, but they're constantly excavating. And this is the front, in, the front part of you go in to the city of David. And obviously, you can see the instrument David would have played on, right? So they have it memorialized there in, in a, a monument representing David. So this is where David's palace was in this area, okay? And what happens is you, you take tour, go through there. And so a lot of times the Israeli children, to teach them their history, because they're very good on this, by the way, they will take, take the Israeli kids and they will go through these areas to learn the history of Israel, okay? And so apparently a class went through there one time about 20-something years ago. Anyway, as kids would be kids... They were on this tour, and there was a huge pile in the city of David of Roman ballista balls. See that ball in that guy's hand right there? This is in the city of David. These ballista balls were found all over Jerusalem, all over the city of David, because the Romans had fired these in on catapults in 70 AD when they destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So these catapult balls are all over the city of, of Israel. Okay? So anyway, a whole pile of them was right there in the city of David. And so these kids are being led on tour. And so one Israeli kid looked at that and he eyeballed that and decided to take one home. And so he just went like that and put it in his, put it in his backpack. And he left. I mean, to take, to take an antiquity like that, I mean, you're talking a lot of money there. That's incalculable. But anyway, he took it, kept it in his home, hid it in his home. That ballista ball stayed with him all the way through high school, all the way he got married, he started having kids, and that ballista ball was still in his home. So, like I said, Passover will bring conviction. The the Feast of Unleavened Bread brings conviction. So anyway, this last year, this last Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, he had an unusual conviction, way unusual than normal, because usually you get convicted and just pass it off and, and try to put it out of his mind. Well, this conviction was abnormal. He not only was convicted about the ballista ball, but the conviction that he said he felt was that we're close to the end of the world. And because of that, he got so convicted that he finally returned the ballista ball back to the Israeli authorities and gave it back to them. Now, I want you to think about this. That's cleaning out the leaven. He had a piece of leaven, so to speak, in his home. He had stolen a long time ago. Cleanse out the leaven, purge it out, and he finally purged it out and gave it back. Now, I want you to think this. That's an Israeli going to a Passover that doesn't even know the Messiah. And yet the feast is prompting him to purge, to purge out the leaven. 
move it to our understanding. We know Messiah is the Passover lamb. We know what Messiah did. And by the way, the Apostle Paul made this application for the Corinth church and to us. Paul said this, Because Christ is your Passover lamb, purge out the leaven from your life. Purge it out. And let me add this. The times that we're going to deal with coming forward into our lives are going to be very dark. And what the Lord is saying to all of us to prepare is purge the leaven to get prepared because you're going to go into a spiritual battle and you don't need a ballista ball hiding in your closet. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.